Hello, and welcome to the White's Chapel Sermon Podcast. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen to our weekly sermons. This is a quick way to enjoy or even revisit a recent message. A weary world rejoices. You know that's a line from the great Christmas hymn, O Holy Night. And actually, Pastor Todd and I were thinking that, you know what? We just, that, that line is so profound that we may just lay aside our sermon and we will do a duet singing all 18 verses of O Holy Night. Now, I will tell you, if we do that, you will know what it's like to be weary. I promise you. But you will also know what it's like to rejoice when we finally finish. But I love, I love that phrase. Seriously, it evokes so many memories. A weary world rejoices. And I was thinking back at a moment of American history that this was really true. It was Christmas Eve, 1941, the year before <clears throat> President Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt at the National Tree Christmas Tree Lighting decided to move the location from the ellipse where it always was. They wanted to make it more homey. So they decided that they needed to move the tree to the, the White House grounds on the South Lawn by the South Fountain. They thought that way more people could see it, more people could come to the ceremony, more people could enjoy it, and it would feel more homey being at the White House. So a year went into preparation for Christmas Eve 1941. Well, you remember what happened on December 7th, <clears throat> the attack on Pearl Harbor, the world was at war. So many people thought, well, of course, because of security reasons, they will have to cancel the tree lighting. But President Roosevelt was insistent. He thought in a time of of uncertainty and fear that a tree lighting, a moment of hope, is what the nation needed most. So they went on with the ceremony. It was on Christmas Eve, and so that afternoon, 20,000 people went through the military security to come onto the grounds of the White House for the lighting. Many people had been Christmas shopping. They left their packages there at the East Gate, and the ceremony went on as planned, but there was a surprise that they hadn't planned. Because the war had broken out, Prime Minister Winston Churchill had just arrived in Washington. They needed to kind of strategize, come up with our, our plans, our international plans, and he arrived on Christmas Eve. So he and the president had a, a, a press conference in the Oval Office. Then Winston Churchill joined them for the tree lighting. And it truly was one of those memorable moments in American history. 20,000 people were there live. Millions listened on the radio across our nation and around the world. President Roosevelt went first. And this is what he said. Our strongest weapon against this war is the conviction of the dignity and brotherhood of man, which Christmas Day signifies more than any other day or any other symbol. And then Winston Churchill went and he spoke some classic words that you read about in history all the time. He said, let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let us grown-ups share to the full in their unstinted pleasure before we turn again to the stern task and formidable year that lie before us. And then Churchill continued, Resolve that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance or denied the right to live in a free and decent world. <clears throat> I think that's the picture of a weary world rejoicing in the midst of fear and darkness for a moment. 
People came together with the hope that the light of Jesus Christ would guide us through the uncertain days that lied ahead. And in times of trouble, we need to remember that. In times of trouble, we need to remember what the gospel writer John told us, that a light shines in the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it. We rejoice not in ourselves or our ability to prognosticate or guide the future, but because Christ has come and the light shines. And we see that hope in a beautiful way in our scripture lesson today that we take from the gospel of Luke chapter one. This powerful scripture we know is the Magnificat. It is a beautiful hymn of praise written by Jesus' mama Mary. And before we dive in to her beautiful words of praise, I want us to remember what's going on. Remember, Mary was engaged to a carpenter named Joseph. She was a young maiden, probably a teenager, and like young maidens would do as she was getting ready for her wedding, we know what was on her mind. She was thinking about the wedding and family gatherings and the celebration and kind of starting housekeeping. Her mind was all on the wedding and she gets visited by an angel who tells her this astounding news that she is going to bear a child, God's own child, the Messiah. And she just listens to this astounding news and she doesn't know what to do with it. And I love what Luke says, that she was perplexed and she pondered this in her heart. <clears throat> she pondered because she knew her world had just gotten turned upside down. She was thinking, honestly, what it would it, what's it gonna be like to be the mother of the Messiah? What's it, what's it gonna be like to announce to everyone the scandal and the, the gossip that she is bearing a child before she is married? And all of her plans and all of her schedules, everything is turned upside down. And yet she pondered this perplexing news and the Holy Spirit overwhelmed her. And she realized that she was the most blessed of people because she had a front row seat to the most amazing event in all of human history. She was going to see God's son be born she would see his first breath, a breath and hold him in her arms. And I think instinctively she knew she would be with him throughout his life and would see his last breath and would again hold him in her arms. And her heart just overflowed with praise and wonder and, and glory to God. And, and she penned these beautiful words that we know in Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 56. Listen to the Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained there with her for about three months and then returned to her home. Mary is foreshadowing who her son will be. 
She is foreshadowing the kingdom that he will bring, that will bring about three revolutions to the world. Remember what she shared with us in the text? The first revolution is scatter the proud. No longer can we save ourselves. No longer could we be right with God. We have a savior who does that. The second, to bring down the powerful and lift up the lowly. And the third is to fill the hungry and send the rich away empty, not just physically, but, but spiritually. <clears throat> what she's saying, what Mary teaches us, this Lord that we magnify is not just a little baby in a manger. He is the little baby that will one day grow up and become the savior who will save us from our sins. He will usher in a new kingdom that he will teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. Literally, he is Emmanuel, God with us. So our business in these days is not just to romanticize his birth, but to embrace our Messiah. Because because it's all about him. It's all about this, this one who still comes to turn the world upside down. It's about this one who still comes to turn our world upside down. It's, it's about that moment. It's about that, that moment when love took on flesh and when joy first drew breath. It's, it's about heaven coming to earth and God coming to us. It's about God becoming us, God becoming one of us so that, so that he can know us, and so that we can know him too. It, it is the audacious truth, it is the audacious promise of Christmas that God knows. It's the audacious promise of Christmas that God knows exactly what it means to be human. And that, and that not just from a distance. And that not just in theory, he knows from the inside. God knows, God knows just how hard it is to be human. He knows, he knows from the inside, he knows, he understands, he gets it. He gets us. He gets you this morning. God, the creator of the universe, God gets you. He can relate to whatever it is you might be going through this morning. God can relate when, when things go bad and when life disappoints and when friends turn their backs and when everything goes wrong. Christmas tells us that God knows exactly what that feels like. God knows. God knows hunger, and he knows pain and loneliness. God knows sorrow, temptation, loss. From the inside, God knows. God knows all about weariness. God knows. And so there is nothing that we go through. There is nothing that you are going through this morning. There is nothing we go through that God hasn't already felt and that he can't already redeem. God knows. And so maybe, maybe that's why Mary here, maybe that's why Mary could, could be so confident. Maybe that's why Mary here, maybe that's why she could be filled with, with such, such defiant hope. 
Maybe that's what filled her with such defiant joy. Mary rejoicing even in her lowliness. Mary rejoicing even in her weariness. Maybe it was that she was filled up. Because maybe it was that. Maybe Mary knew too. Mary knew. Mary, Mary knew that this, that all of this, Mary knew that this, this is just birth pains. So you know, all these things, these are just the birth pains of something better, of something more, something wondrously, gloriously, magnificently more. It's the promise of this season. It is the truth of Christmas. It is the undefeatable expectation of Christmas, of a Christ-centered Christmas. But in the hardest, darkest, most exhausting of times, Jesus still comes to us. That Jesus comes to us, maybe, maybe not in the ways that we expect, but des- definitely in, in the ways that we need, and he knows. From the inside, Jesus comes to us knowing just how hard it is to be human, and he's ready to help. He's capable of help. He's desperate to help. Jesus is desperate to help us and to hold us and to heal us. He wants to love us and to save us. Um, there's, a, there's this old story. Back in, in 1894, a child was born in the parsonage of the, the little Methodist church in, in Asheville, North Carolina. His parents would, would call him George. The, the son of a Methodist preacher, George Harley would, would grow up to be an active and, and really bright young man. Um, but, but even from his youngest days, he had this sense, even from this, his earliest days, he, he had this nudge inside of him. He knew that, that God had placed a calling on his heart. He knew that God had made him for, for something more. And so whenever George Harley graduated from high school, he went off, he, he enrolled at, at Duke University. And after graduating, after serving in, in World War I, when he came back to the States, he, he enrolled then at the, the medical school at Yale. I mean, Harley was a brilliant man. He did incredible work in pathology and in, and in tropical diseases, but he still, he couldn't shake it. Um, he, he couldn't shake that, that feeling that he knew as a kid, that feeling he had deep in his soul, that, that feeling he had deep in his bones, that knowledge that, that God had put him on earth for something more, that calling that he had known. So after graduating from, from Yale in, in 1924, Dr. Harley then, he applied to the church's foreign mission board. And with, with those sort of credentials, of course they accepted him. Um, but they asked him to do two more years of training. Dr. Harley did two more years of training in theology and in languages. And finally, whenever he was prepared, finally, whenever he graduated, um, 1926, he and his wife, they were, they, they were appointed to, to serve the mission stations. They were started to, to serve the mission in Liberia. Dr. Harley and his wife, they would serve their friends in Liberia for 35 years. And their, in their time there, they built a hospital, a school, and a church, of course. In fact, in their, their 35 years in Liberia, they built over 200 buildings there at their mission station. They became beloved members of that community. But they didn't start out like that. Harley early, he, he talked about the hardship of those, those first years. He said, whenever they first arrived there in Liberia in 1926, he said, everyone was skeptical of them. 
the villagers, the tribal elders, they were a little leery. They were leery of these outsiders, and so they were just partially receptive. They were, they were cautiously receptive. They were receptive to the physician in him, but, but not to the missionary. And so they helped him. They helped him build a clinic thing. They helped him build a, a little workshop there that, that first year. They even helped him build a, a, small little, a small little chapel there on the property. But Harley said in his first five years, in his first five years of ministry in Liberia, he said, not a single person, not a single villager ever came to, to his services on Sunday. Not, not a single soul ever came into that, that little chapel that they had built. Said it was hard. Those are hard years of ministry. He said, made maybe probably even more complicated by the fact that almost as soon as they arrived there, Mrs. Harley, she, she got pregnant. She had birth to their first child, a, a son. A, they had a boy that they, they named Robert, but who they called Bobby. Bobby was, was a precious little man. Growing up on the, the edge of the jungle, he was the apple of his parents' eye. And, uh, and one day, as Dr. Harley was working in the clinic, as he was in the dispenser, he looked out the window. He was just watching, he was watching Bobby play along the tree line. And as he was watching, he saw Bobby fall, and then he saw Bobby pop right back up. But then he saw Bobby fall almost immediately again. But that time there was no getting back up. And so Dr. Harley all of a sudden became a dad. And mustering the speed that only a parent could, he raced to his son and he picked him up. He raced to his boy and he, he wrapped his arms around him and he lifted him up. And whenever he did, he felt it. Whenever he lifted his boy up, he felt the, the fever that was coursing through his little body. And he leaned over and he whispered into his son's ear. He said, it's okay. Bobby, don't, don't be scared. Don't be scared, I'm here, it's gonna be okay. Don't be scared, I'm here, and I know exactly what to do. And, and it should have been enough. It, it, all, it all should have worked. All that training, all that education, Duke, Yale, it all should have worked. Something should have worked. But nothing did. A fever continued to rage, and in the end, that disease wound up taking his precious little boy's life. Um, distraught with grief, that doctor, that missionary, distraught with grief, that father found it hard to break away from his son's side, but whenever he did, he, he walked across the courtyard to, the little, to that little, little workshop that the villagers had built, and there he, he made a, a small little casket for the small little body of a small little son, and Whenever he put Bobby in, he nailed, he nailed, the, nailed the top shut and he hoisted it on his shoulder. He wanted to take Bobby back out to the jungle one last time. He wanted to bury him there in the trees that he used to love to run and play and hide beneath. But while he was on the journey, while he was on that trail going out to the, to the clearing that he had selected, he bumped into one of the villagers. The villager was, was walking back to, to the town and, and he saw the box and he was curious about it. He asked him, he asked him about the box and... So Harley told him, Harley told him exactly what had happened. He told him that his son had died and, and the villager asked if he could help. Listen to, to how George described to a friend what happened next. He said, so the old man took one end of the coffin and I took the other. 
Eventually, we, we came to the clearing in the forest, and we dug a grave there and laid Bobby in it. But when we'd covered up the grave, I, I just couldn't stand it any longer. I fell down on my knees in the dirt, and I began to sob uncontrollably. My beloved son was dead, and, and there I was in the middle of an African jungle, 8,000 miles away from home and relatives, and I felt so all alone. But when I started crying, the old man cocked his head in stunned amazement. He squatted down beside me and looked at me so intently. For, for a long time, he just sat there listening to me cry. Then suddenly, he, he leaped to his feet and he went back running up the trail through the jungle, screaming again and again at the top of his voice, white man, white man. He cries like one of us. Um, that night, um, George and his wife were sitting in the, the somber stillness of grief, and there was a knock at the door. Whenever, whenever they opened it, there the, the village elder stood, and there with them was nearly everybody else from the village. They came back on Sunday, too. They filled that little chapel to overflowing. They crammed tight pack in that sacred little space. For the very first time, those villagers, they wanted to know about, about George's Jesus. You see, everything got turned upside down. Everything changed. Everything changed the moment they saw, not the doctor, not the missionaries, everything changed the moment they saw those father's tears. See, it wasn't all of his training that, that convinced them. It wasn't all of his education. It wasn't his effort, his work, his bedside manner. It was his, it was his, his humanity. That's what convinced him. It was his humanity. The fact that he cried just like they cried. The fact that he hurt just like they hurt. It was his humanity. It was his humanity that tore down the walls. And it's Jesus's that does the same thing too. Jesus's humanity tears down the walls. This, this precious babe born in a manger. This, this miracle of that Bethlehem night. And, and back then, just like now, there, there would have been crowds and there would have been lines and, and everyone in town, they would have been grumbling. The politics, the, the, the tiresome politics of the Roman Empire, all the taxes, it's all anyone would have been talking about. But, but it was into all of that mess. It was into all of that noise that the peace of God was born. And a cold, lonely, dark, borrowed, stinky stable, there the light of the world pierced the darkness. And for that one holy, silent night, Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph just got to be a mom and a dad. For that one moment, for that one sacred moment, their son was theirs and he was only theirs. He was theirs before he was ours. And for that one moment, they got to hold him. For that one moment, they got to keep him as their very own before they gave him away to the world. And friends, the miracle of Christmas still, still happens like that. 
in ways we don't understand, in ways we can't comprehend, faith and hope and love and joy, they're still born in a manger. Right now, in the dark, cold, lonely, stinky places of our lives, that's, that's where Jesus comes. That's where hope is born. That's where love awakens. That's where, that's why, that's why a weary world can rejoice. Because God knows. And we can too. As we pray. Our God, this morning we, we want to know. God, this morning we need to know, not, not just hope, not just wish, but God, in our souls, in the depths of our bones, in the depths of our spirit, God, we need to know your goodness and your presence and your power and your love. God, come to us and help us to know that you are still the God that, that turns things upside down and you're the God that makes things right side up. Because if we're honest, we, we have to confess, a lot of us have to confess that a lot of our lives already feel like they're upside down already. God, and we come to you as people who are hurting, people who are, who are broken with broken dreams and broken relationships and broken hearts. And we go into these days of festive joy, Lord, and it feels sometimes just like a cruelty. We come as people acquainted with grief and loss and guilt and fear. And God, we appeal to you that, that you would be the God of rejoicing, that as the heavens were filled with the angel song, Lord, that you would fill us up as well. Knowing that these are just the birth pains. And these are just the wombs where miracles happen. Lord, we want to see you at work. God, we want to know the strength of your hand, the strength of your love. So God, come to us and take us. In this week when, when storms left so many of us powerless, we know that's not just a physical thing. God, it's a spiritual one too. That so many of us feel powerless in the spiritual storms of this life. Lord, come to us and breathe new life into us. Come to us, Lord, and this week and be born, birth something new in us and through us. So God, come to us and take us and change us and use us, Lord. Use us all and only for the glory of your name. Because it's in that name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss new releases. We'll have new podcasts coming out all the time. Be sure to check us out online at whiteschapelumc.com. Please download the WC Life app and follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things WC.